Let's pray as we come to the Word of God. Heavenly Father, it's so good to gather as your people in your presence. Lord, we've just sung that it's been made possible through your Son, Jesus, and a saving sacrifice for us. Lord, we do say thank you. And as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us and grow and shape us as people who live for and follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you would know that I was, uh, we were away last weekend, Angela and I. Uh, we took a little holiday, uh, but we were also celebrating our sixth wedding anniversary. Uh, we were eating our way through the Gold Coast. Uh, we played mini golf. Uh, we versed each other in basketball, car racing, bowling, and even the dancing game in the arcade. Uh, you can ask Angela who won all those things. <laughs> But I think this year, it dawned upon us more than ever that we're not newlyweds anymore. We're not old timers yet, but six years feels like uh, we've gone, uh, we've got some runs under our belt. Uh, we've been doing this for a little while. And the danger of marriage from what we've seen and what we've heard is that it's easy for marriages to coast along, to be busy, but to be busy without love, to be busy but lacking joy and affection, and to be busy but forgetting why we got married. And while this isn't the silver bullet, part of how Angela and I address this includes getting away on our anniversary to press pause on the busyness of life and to spend time on love, joy, affections, quality time, and me beating her in lots of things. <laughs> so that our marriage isn't just busy and without love. She got four holes in one in mini golf, but I still beat her. <laughs> and the same danger in marriages is the danger of disciples of Jesus too, of churches made up of disciples of Jesus, busy, but without love. Busy, but without joy and affection towards Jesus, our God and King. Without love for Jesus, the winner of our salvation, the one who died in our place for our sin, who by rising into new life, as we just celebrated Easter Sunday a few weeks ago, assures us of new life forever. We see this in the church of Ephesus, in a very clear passage of scripture, I think, a busy church without love for Jesus. Well, today uh, we've been uh, advertising it for a while. We begin our vision series for the year today, a church on mission, uh, something that we're going to tease out over this term, the next 10 weeks. Uh, we've got exciting speakers uh, coming, uh, including representatives from Open Doors International, Church Missionary Society and City Bible Forum. But we don't want to be busy. We don't want to be a church on mission, but without love, without joy, and without affections towards Jesus, our God and King. So that's where we start. That's where a church on mission begins. Not with doing, 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 
but with aligning our love, our joy, our affections, and our worship, and letting our works, our missional efforts, be fueled, be driven, be an overflow of our love for Jesus, our risen Lord and Saviour, the winner of our salvation. Just a bit of context for today's passage. Uh, Firstly, it's in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is a hard book for some, but to give a little clarity about what it's all about, Revelation is firstly a prophetic writing. It's got visions about the future. It's an apocalyptic writing, so it's about revealing truth and revealing reality. And it's also a letter. It's written to someone. It's written to seven churches around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Revelation is written to encourage persecuted and downtrodden followers of Jesus to endure, to keep going to the end. Secondly, today's passage is part of a section including seven letters to seven churches. Uh, These seven churches are the recipients of this letter. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses each of these seven churches. And he uses a common formula. Jesus introduces himself. He commends the church. He corrects the church. He lays out some of the consequences of not changing. And then he gives a promise of those who keep going and endure to the end. Thirdly, today's passage is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. It's a church that we saw last term Paul share the gospel at in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia. It was famous for its temple of Artemis. But if you remember Acts chapter 19, the gospel changed everything. The church was planted and it was buzzing along smoothly. But 40 or so years later, after Acts chapter 19, we get this letter in Revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ addressed to this busy, well-established and thriving church. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at two pictures of the church that Jesus talks about here. And then we're going to finish with what all of this means for us, for me and you, for Hertford Street today, as we think about our vision for the year of being a church on mission. Well, if you have your Bibles open, I have a look starting verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus, he directs these words to the angel representing the church in Ephesus or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. Either way, it's ultimately going to find its way to the body of believers in Ephesus. And Jesus, he introduces himself holding the seven stars in his right hand and walking among the seven golden lampstands. All of this is picture language saying, Jesus, he's in control of the churches. He's in control and he sees all. He knows how each church is going. 
He knows how, how each lamp is shining. He knows if there's light or darkness, if the lampstand, if the church is doing what it should. And this is the basis of what comes next in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Here we see three good things going for the church in Ephesus. First, they were a busy church. They had works to boast. Their church looked like an active ant's nest or beehive. It was the sort of church where everyone was in a growth group. Everyone was in a serving team. Everyone was here at church on Sunday every week. People were being trained into leaders. A lot of stuff was happening, whether it be ministries, events, activities, initiatives. Second, it says they were a persevering church, toil and patient endurance. You see, Ephesus was a melting pot for religions, cults, emperor worship, and materialism. But despite this, despite the pressures of society and the pressure, the opposition, the hatred and the abuse, remember this city was the city that rioted because of Paul. These, this body of believers, they had not thrown away Jesus. They were plugging away faithfully. They weren't throwing in the towel. They were firm in their resolve for Jesus. Third good thing, they were a biblically faithful people. They had the spiritual faithfulness to test teachings against Scripture, to call them out, and to even distance themselves from false and evil teachings and teachers. Sometimes today we call uh, these sorts of churches old school, archaic, fundamental, narrow, or unloving. But here Jesus praises this sort of biblical faithfulness. They did what Paul warned their elders about in Acts chapter 20, looking out for wolves who were out to devour the flock. This looks like a great church, doesn't it? A busy church, a persevering church, and a biblically faithful church. You might be even thinking, sign me up. Let's be like the church in Ephesus. But Jesus, he doesn't stop there, does he? Because Jesus, remember, he knows all. He sees all. And Jesus lays out what else he sees here. And he only mentions one thing, but it's one big doozy in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, being a busy and bustling church is great, but it means nothing. It's in grave danger if a true and genuine love for Jesus is gone. 
the love for Jesus that the believers in the church once had when they first gave their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, when they were new and zealous believers and they wanted to see everyone come to Jesus and they'd tell everyone about their newfound hope in him. Disciples of Jesus who just wanted to give their all to Jesus, all their time, all their things, in all spheres of life. You see, they'd lost this love. Even more, because it's not just a passive lost, it's active. They'd abandoned this first love for Jesus. They gave it away. They ran in another direction. They left it behind. See, Jesus shows Ephesus to be a church of works, but without love. They were doing good things, but it all meant nothing without a genuine and growing love for Jesus as their God and King. They were in danger of being busy, but drifting away from Jesus. So as we keep going, Jesus offers the correction to the church and the believers there and what they needed to do. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus, again, he gives three things, three actions. And the first is to remember Remember from where you have fallen. In other words, remember the love for Jesus you had when you first came to Jesus, when you saw how good Jesus is, when you first turned to Jesus and gave your life and your all to him. When you responded first to how hopeless you were without Jesus facing death and judgment on your own, and how full of certain hope you are with Jesus, the winner of salvation and life. That love, that worship, that joy, that adoration, that zealous commitment, that sense of awe and gratitude to Jesus. However long ago it was, whether it's years, even decades, You see, most times, believers don't even notice that they've drifted away or gone cold or abandoned their first love for Jesus. But Jesus calls the believers in Ephesus to take a step back, to remember and look how far they've fallen. And the second action is this, to repent You see, after seeing how far we've fallen, the natural action that Jesus wants us to make is to repent, to do a U-turn, to change your ways, to love Jesus just as you did when you first came to him. And repenting, returning to your first love for Jesus, it's not something that you can just flip a switch and do. It's not just an off and on button that you press. It's not something that you can just grit your teeth and say, I'm just going to love Jesus. You see, repenting and loving Jesus, it involves letting the good news 
of Jesus hit you afresh. It involves spending time delighting in his word. It involves soaking in the beauty of the cross of Jesus. It involves comprehending the new life that Jesus has won for you. And responding to this in love, in worship, in joy, in zealous commitment to King Jesus, the one who won new life forever for you. And as we move to the third action here, I actually think it's a bit surprising because you'd think Jesus might say something like, love Jesus the way you did first. But he says to believers here to do the works you did at first. You see, Jesus wants his church, his saved and forgiven people to love him. But it's a love that includes works, that leads to works. It's not a church of love without works, but a church of loved, fueled works. Believers who love Jesus, that overflows to works, to be busy for Jesus and his purpose. Jesus wants his church to be busy, but that busyness can't be separated from loving Jesus. So Jesus corrects the church in Ephesus to be a church of love-fueled works. Jesus drives this correction home by saying at the end of verse 5, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When I studied architecture uh, 15 years ago now, uh, we would have end-of-semester presentations, critiques. Uh, it would either be the head lecturer doing this or a guest architect from some firm, and we would present, they would give us feedback, and the worst thing that we could do as students was to ignore that feedback, to not listen. Because if we didn't take on board their feedback in our final presentations, our submissions, we would most likely fail the course. And this happened to a lot of my friends. You see, not listening is deadly. And here, not listening to Jesus is deadly for a church. Because you see, loving Jesus is central. It's critical, it's so important that the church of Ephesus, if they didn't repent, if they didn't listen to Jesus, Jesus would remove its lampstand, meaning that Jesus would close the church here and shut its doors. Jesus doesn't say anything in the imagery about individual believers in the church, but I think you wouldn't want to be a believer in a church that doesn't listen to Jesus that Jesus judges by removing its lampstand. And this impresses on us even more as a church, not only to be concerned about your own spiritual state, but to care and, concern, and be concerned about and follow up all 
in the church on how they're going in loving Jesus. You see, it'd be safe to say that for a church, for a believer, not repenting, not listening to Jesus, and having your church's lampstand removed, it's not where you want to be spiritually with Jesus. Verse 6 continues to highlight that a church who loves Jesus first is a church of works, a church that is biblically faithful. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, the Nicolaitans were not sure exactly who they were, uh, but most likely they were known as compromisers, whether it be Jesus plus empire worship or Jesus plus temple worship. And Jesus praises this church's biblical faithfulness in distancing and even hating this practice. You see, loving Jesus doesn't mean we can compromise the gospel, unlike some of the progressive churches we see today. Loving Jesus actually leads to being more biblically faithful as we worship Jesus and no one and nothing else. And finally, Jesus holds out the promise for those who keep going to the end. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see, those who love Jesus zealously, who repent of their lack of love, who adore Jesus and worship him only, and let this love fuel, drive, and overflow into works for Jesus. This is their future. Verse 7. Eternity with Jesus. Life forever with Jesus. Life in that perfect new creation and paradise that God has always promised his people ever since the beginning of Genesis. This future, it's the future for those who love Jesus today, plodding away through thick and thin, holding on to Jesus and loving him even when it's hard, even when everyone else doesn't. This future, the future of a church of believers filled with love-fueled works. It's life with Jesus forever. So as we begin our vision series this term, uh, we've seen in Jesus' words to the church of Ephesus that a busy church, it must start with a church who loves Jesus. A church on mission begins with a church loving Jesus. Loving Jesus, having a genuine, growing, and thriving love for Jesus, our God and King. That's the foundation for being a church on mission. Because you see, without love for Jesus, our works would be for nothing. And our busyness, the things we do, would be for nothing. 
And this echoes Jesus' words in John 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. A church on mission is a church who firstly remains in Jesus, abides in him, loves him, adores and worships him, is zealously and unashamedly committed to him, understanding that life is only found in Jesus. Many of you know that I went to hospital uh, almost exactly two years ago, uh, last week, with high blood pressure, emergent, or whatever the word is, high blood pressure. At the time uh, when I went to hospital, my blood pressure was so out of control. It was shocking. For those who know a bit of health, it was 240 over 130. When I did the manual pump, it was over 250. But you know what? However out of the blue I felt it was, and however painful it is to admit, a big part of all that happened was actually my fault. It was my ignorance, my not getting checked up, my not following up my health for a good six to eight years. And over that span of time, I slowly moved from being a healthy young man to being sent straight into the emergency ward in hospital. Let's not make this mistake spiritually. Let's not ignore our state before God. Let's not wait until it's an emergency and it's critical. Let's be willing to check ourselves up to see how we're going, how you're going in your love for Jesus. So let me ask you as we begin our vision series this term, how is your love for Jesus? How's your love for your Lord and Savior? And how does it compare to the time when you first accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior? The zeal, the joy, the commitment, the awe and wonder when you first came to and loved Jesus. Maybe you found loving Jesus today, and that love has grown, it's thriving, and that zeal, the joy, the commitment, it's active and working and fueling you today. Can I say to you, that's fantastic. That's great, keep going. Be deliberate about continuing to love Jesus. Maybe today you ask that question and you can see that your love for Jesus has waned a bit, that it's lacking, that it's fallen from when you first loved Jesus. Well, if you're found lacking love today, Disciples of Jesus usually don't simply wake up one day and say, I don't love Jesus. Maybe you substituted your love for Jesus 
And over time, you found yourself redirecting your love, your attention, your zeal, your joy and commitment to someone or something else. And you've done this without even realising it. Or maybe you simply drifted. Your love for Jesus has slowly drifted bit by bit over the years, over the decades, over the seasons of life. And it's drifted to being like these believers in Ephesus, of following Jesus being a ritual of works, of duty, of busyness, with little love, with stale love, or even with no love for Jesus. Well, if you've seen that your love for Jesus has waned, let's remember here that Jesus is gracious, even in his correction to us, even in our sin and fallenness, he gives us yet another opportunity to come back to him. Jesus says in today's passage, remember, remember how far you've fallen. Remember your first love. Remember how good and gracious Jesus is. Remember the cross of Jesus where your life was won and secured forever. Remember. And then Jesus says, repent. Don't just remember, but change your ways. Do that U-turn. Refresh yourself in the good news of life in Jesus and respond by loving him and putting him first. And then Jesus says to do. Let that love for Jesus overflow in your life to produce love-fueled works. Love that has legs. Love that perseveres, that toils away and stands firm over time and through thick and thin. For the men who at the conference yesterday, love that turns up, that keeps turning up every day, patient endurance and toil. Love with no compromising Jesus. Loving one master, being faithful to King Jesus and him alone. How's your love for Jesus today? Well, as we finish off, as we begin this vision series about being a church on mission, we don't want to jump the gun. We don't want it to be all do, 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 busy, busy, busy. The most important question is a heart question. How's your love for Jesus? Because we don't want to be a church on mission without a love for Jesus. It'll fail. It'll be like the church in Ephesus, a busy church without love. Instead, we want to fuel a church on mission full of love for Jesus by loving him first and foremost and letting that love overflow into works for Jesus, into being ambassadors for Jesus, into proclaiming Jesus, into being on mission 
for him. My prayer for each of us today, and I trust that's your prayer too, is that you would be found loving Jesus, basking in his goodness, his grace, his glory, responding afresh to his love for you, his great work of saving you from death and judgment to life and salvation. A love that's demonstrated by joy, adoration, worship, zeal, and commitment, and good works for our Lord and Saviour, our King, Jesus, whom we love first and foremost. Let's pray. Father God, you call us to love Jesus first and foremost, to grow in our love for Jesus, and to let our living for Jesus be an overflow of that love. For those who find ourselves here today, realizing that we've drifted and even abandoned our love for Jesus, please forgive us. Please help us, as Jesus says here, to remember, to repent, and to do the works we did at first. For those here who find themselves thriving in their love for Jesus, please sustain them in this. Help their love for Jesus to overflow into good works for Jesus. Remind all of us of how good and gracious Jesus is, seen most clear as he died for our sins and rose from the dead to pave the way for eternal life, life forever in your new creation, in paradise for those of us who love and trust him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.